0: Hi everyone, welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media production. And our second hour is usually something we wanna spend a little bit more time on. Today, we're gonna talk about um, the digital audio basics. Jeff Francis is gonna lead a discussion. We've got a lot of experts here around audio um, about uh, sampling, quantization, dithering, A A to D conversions and more. If you've got questions about basics, uh, around audio, go ahead and throw those into Makana. And if you have just general questions about audio, uh, this is just such a great hour. Uh, when we talk about, we have something specific we're talking in the second hour, but you've got a lot of audio experts in the panel today. So, uh, definitely, uh, throw those questions in, in the first hour as well. Um, and, uh, we'll, we'll get to them as fast as we can. Bill, what do we've got?
1: Our first question this morning comes from Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, Germany. What remote production scenarios are most people most are people most interested to see or have talked about on our Friday show from Cinegear? Uh, go ahead, uh, Jeff.
2: So, remote production. Uh, Richard Lavery. Love to see what he's been doing and changes he's made to his theater there. Uh, that'd be the the first one that came to mind. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I'm interested in just
1: finding out how everything that we're trying to do works out. I mean, this is the first time that I've been investigating doing a kind of a live iPhone broadcast out of some place. And, you know, I, I, it's interesting to me. I'm thinking about having three different hats while I'm on site at Cinegear. Part of it I want to do traditionally and capture some B-rolls. So I'm going around in kind of electronic mm-hmm. field production and, mode just to grab and, some yeah, stuff.
0: And we're not really talking about Cinegear as much as just talking about general remote production. You know, like oh, okay. so. So this won't be a Cinegear. Um, we, we we will talk about Cinegear, how we did it, but on this one, you know, really Jonas and other others are going to jump on and talk about, uh, you know, the different types of remote production that can be done. Um, you know, I think that um, you know, tunneling is something that I'm really interested in, and how uh, instances are set up, uh, in the cloud. I think is something that I know I'm interested in, um, to see, you know, how that how that process works. Um, And and then just, you know, I think talking through uh, comms with the folks on the ground, um, you know, what parts make the most sense in the cloud versus what parts make the most sense on the, you know, on the ground. And so, you know, those are the kind of things that I think will be really interesting and just, you know, what that process actually looks like. I know that we were in a meeting yesterday, I think you know, there's been a lot of production going on remotely. Um, and it's kind of an amazing thing to hear. Like, I'd love to have some general examples of some of the stuff that, that Jonas and some of the other folks, Richard and others have been doing. If they can give us some examples of like, this is what we're doing right now. Um, I think it's just a great state of the state of the union kind of thing of this is where remote production is today. Let's go to the next question.
1: Next one comes from Andre Dole in Berlin. I need to buy a laptop for use with OBS. Simple UVC camera in via ATEM, streaming to YouTube. Recommendations and what specs he is interested in should he pay attention to?
3: Uh, Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, I just got a uh, laptop last year. Well, actually, it was this year. Uh, And I got an MSI, and I'm pretty happy with it. They have one. uh, The new ones are like this, Are the... uh, this is a Crosshair 16-inch for about 1700 bucks at Best Buy. It's an entry-level gaming laptop. It comes with a uh, 13th-generation Intel i7 and uh, an NVIDIA uh, uh, GPU, uh, 4070 GPU, which is kind of their entry-level GeForce RTX uh, GPU, which is certainly good enough for uh, OBS would do quite well with that. Um, it's a decent price, has plenty of memory. 16 gigabytes of memory should be enough for you and a uh, terabyte of uh ssd and vme uh, that should work quite nicely go jeffrey
4: this sounds like it's just basically a gateway from the uh from the ATEM to uh YouTube. And in that case, uh you you don't have to go hog wild, but it's always the it's always better to do the buy once, cry once uh method on this. Uh MSI is a great gaming laptop. I I always look at the gaming laptops. Asus has the republics of gaming. Uh, Laptops, which are great, Uh, having a uh, a, a discrete card inside there for video is always better, especially if you're doing 1080, 60 or better on your uh, live streams to YouTube. Uh, Going uh, OBS is getting better on Mac, so you could go the route of a Mac MacBook, uh, but uh, I would, I'm still would be more comfortable uh, suggesting any type of PC for OBS right now. Um, and and yeah, I think you should get 32 gigabytes of RAM inside that system because, especially if you decide, hey, we're gonna we're gonna bump all this up and go 4K eventually, then that laptop will still have some validity to it. Next question.
1: Next one comes to us from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. I did a live streaming Discord watch party yesterday with Consumer Reports. What does the panel think of streaming into Discord? And he's got a link there.
4: Go, ahead, Jeffrey. I think it's a great way to keep your community in a walled garden, and if you're if you're if you're pushing, keeping people in there, then uh, that's. Once again, that's a great way to do that. It's not going to be your best in uh, uh, quality. Uh, so if you're also streaming out to something like YouTube or Vimeo or anything like that, so you can have a high quality uh, version, uh, then definitely do that. It's also a great way to bring people into the, to the uh, conversation if uh, you need them to. And of course, they're chatting right there. So it's, it's all encompassing and uh, it can be a great secondary as well as a primary. Next question. T.J.
1: Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota, I've been skeptical about Apple actually releasing any type of VR virtual reality product until now. Apple sent an email with the title Code New Worlds. New Worlds? That does sound like VR, or at very least, perhaps AR or games. What do the panelists think? Go ahead, Jeff.
2: So it looks like they're... Potentially releasing a new hardware and probably uh, operating system version to go along with that. Uh, Goggles that can do VR and AR. Um, VR is pretty, for me personally, VR is pretty limiting, but I'm really excited about AR. But uh, the goggles themselves that I've seen, you know, prototypes leaks on uh, still look like something that I don't think normal people are going to wear out in the world. We need to. You know, it's great to do this, it's great to advance the technology, but once we get to the point where uh, we get AR on sort of normal looking glasses where I can get information display, you know, a heads-up display in my normal life that doesn't require me to don ski goggles, uh, I'm really excited about AR at that point. But you know, we have to keep pushing. We're not going to get there yet until we do all these iterations of of the ski goggles for VR and AR. So I'm excited. And the funny thing is, is that you know, with
0: Google Glass, you had that a lot of that heads up to stuff where you could just kind of look up, look up at us for a second, and and see what you were looking, you know, and get the information you needed. It's just the camera is what killed the Google. Even though the camera was the best part of Google Glass, that's it, poor usage of it is what
3: ended up killing it. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Privacy concerns were one of the big problems. Uh, whether, yeah, you know, I just thought of a perfect uh, AR application for the new Google. Uh, I mean, for the new uh, Apple um, <clears throat> AR glasses, is uh, skiing, you know, augmented skiing. Augmented <laughs> skiing. <laughs> you can put up little flags so get, that are get, imaginary get, and try and ski around them on the slope. You know, you could, yeah, just, just random people
0: like just cutting hard. And in nobody's going to look at you and,
3: stupid because. It,
0: it, or, or you could look down It could analyze the mogul field and just give you the prop, you know, this is the best path. For you, like it might say you might some my my brother, it would be like the hardest path for me and be like, you might want to go down the side,
3: you know, so but if you want to do a backflip, your speed is two miles an hour too slow. you got to speed up a little before you hit the top of that mogul. If you're going to do a backflip, yeah, you know, exactly. yeah, it could be what I'd like to see. I thought maybe code new worlds meant that they were going to be adding some type of AI assistant like Microsoft has added uh, to code generation, uh, which would be handy to have. That could mean what that is. Go
1: ahead, Bill. On On the WWDC announcement site, there's a little Easter egg that kind of may hint about some of what they're talking about. It basically says, uh, click on the logo and, and a long press on your phone. And then I was surprised. I happened to be lying in bed at the time, and I thought, okay, I'll try it. And I pushed and held down. The next thing I know, there's this floating three-dimensional morphing little logo for the WWDC that is changing and also bringing up text and text fades away. But the interesting thing was there was a wall next to me, and clearly AR had read the shape of my room, and it put the shadow for this ai construct on my wall in the room very realistically and if i moved my phone it would change the relationship between the floating vr construct and the shadow projected on the wall and i thought ah this may be a piece of what they're talking about and now that people are talking about using these goggles as a content creator device rather than a content consumption device I can see them trying to get more and more people involved in this kind of construct to be able to to code stuff for this new 3D environment. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Good, Jeff. It's funny, by the
5: way, you mentioned the skiing thing. I mean, aside from some of the fun, I mean, think of the genuine safety in terms of, you know, tree approaching, tree approaching, um, as well as driving. And that's an important distinction to just, keep reminding us all to think about is you know uh there's vr and ar and in some ways complementary but in some ways two very different things and uh boy i mean i can't wait until someday there's true genuine you know look like regular glasses which i wear anyhow and they are fully ar in terms of coding your your question is funny you know you're skeptical are you skeptical about whether or not they will release this or that they should release this you know it's it's likely something will happen but coding can also be just new Uh, features and abilities for coding it you know for some time now we've been able to test that ar experience with the phones and it could be more of that or it could be you know the real thing that we finally start to see good bill
1: i just don't ever want to hear tree approaching tree approaching now summoning medivac
0: (laughs) i you know i i um your apple watch does that I just want to see Apple like throw throw the serious money down and get the voice to be Paul Bettany.
2: <laughs> so, 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 so I think that
0: would be that would be like you get the get the full Iron Man experience. And so the um uh, the you know I think that um uh that I think it's going to be really interesting to see. You know, obviously we're going to be watching it as a second a second year experience uh, on Monday. So a lot of us will get to look watch it and talk about it and. Um, have discussions about what, what we think is going to happen here. I, I think that it's going to be pretty interesting. I do think that there's going to be probably some things where you can create a lot of new worlds without any code. So, so some kind of low-code solution for average folks to throw things together. Um, I think that that's part of the the experimentation that will most likely happen. There's some rumors about that. Uh, I do think that the AR, you know, whatever they end up calling that that environment, will be really interesting. The collision detection, which is some of what um, what uh, Bill was talking about is being able to build a rough model and they've shown that already. So they they already, they showed that in the last WWC or the one before that where they're grabbing 3D data from that LiDAR and you can imagine that 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 your headset is going to know everything about the room around you. As you play, it's going to be able to build up a lot of stuff. So when we think about AR, it may not be heads-up displays as much as being able to do things and play games. Imagine, we were talking about on a Mac break yesterday, imagine being able to do laser tag in your house, but you could actually hide behind things in your house, you know, from each other because you could use those things. It's not a CG thing. It's something that you could interact with the real world, you know, in that environment. And so I think that that's going to be a really interesting, um, you know, possibility. I do think that, you know, my, I think that what we have, I don't know if we have to see it, but I think the 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 hill is steeper or or less steep at certain um specs the big thing is is can they give us you know a high frame rate at least north of 90 frames a second probably 96 frames a second somewhere north of there as well as giving us um 6k per eye or higher i think if they can do that then we end up in a in a pretty interesting space as far as what it looks like i can tell you that that looks and feels completely different than everything else that anybody's put on their head up until now, um, and so that that will change a lot of a lot of calculations pretty quickly, um, and it's it's hard to explain <laughs> if you haven't seen it, but it just definitely feels different, and so um, so I think that that's what they have to get to. Uh, if they don't get there, the, the, it's not that the hill is impenetrable, but it's much steeper as far as getting adoption. But I do think that as consumers, we're not going to see a headset probably until twenty twenty five. Uh, maybe end of 2024 Um, these are going to be developer headsets and they're going to be designed for developers to understand what they're actually working inside of and and allow them to build the content for everyone now they'll be probably available if you pay the hundred dollars to be a developer you can you can probably get one and um so they'll be three thousand dollars or thirty one hundred dollars or twenty five hundred dollars or whatever that is and they'll sell as many as they can make you know like they'll you know they i don't think they can make them that fast but i think that they'll sell all the ones that they can make I'm i'm guessing anywhere from 500,000 to a, a couple million a year. Uh next court according.
3: Yeah, it may us- usher in a whole new wave of Pokemon Go. Oh, Instead yeah. of swiping, you're going to use your, your hand to do this gesture gesture. How good, uh, Jeff.
5: And we should keep in mind they have you know some of that technology of identifying things from the short stint, or however long it really was, where they were working on uh, self-driving car tech.
0: Well, not only that, I mean, if you open up Notes, um, if you open up a picture in Notes, it'll actually identify the, the the plant for you. It's like the it's what you know. There's there's picture this, which is what I have, and I use to try to figure out what plants I'm looking at when I'm hiking. But there's um, there's a it's built into the Notes app as well, and and so they've been doing a lot of. ID uh, it's made it easier because we have iphoto um, or photos constantly churning through our, our photos and figuring things out it, it makes that that calculation easier next question
1: Alexander Knight in Vancouver British Columbia I was watching the shuttle pod show on YouTube and notice when they cut to camera wide sometimes you can visibly see the frame rate slow down looks like Sony it looks like a Sony mirrorless camera could you could this be an overheating issue
0: uh, it could be. It's probably unlikely. What 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 that sounds like is a uh, it's it's a shift. My question for you will be: it, Is it a something that stays slow as low frame rate, or does it just slow down for a second and then catch back up again? If it's slowing down all the time, um, that's an odd behavior, and that might be a setting issue. I, I have a hard time. Usually, when when the camera's overheat, they tend to just turn off. The but what does happen is you might see um, a frame rate where it's going like this. Oh, anyway, um, the, uh, no, sorry. Let's turn that off for a second. You might see a frame rate where it's going along and then it drops down and then comes back up again. In fact, you saw that has Netflix a lot for a while where it would lose frame rate when it's cut to a wide shot. They've gone, Netflix has kind of moved to just having rough dark areas <laughs> just that, everything kind of swims in netflix now but that but that transition's gone <laughs> so so the transition was if you went from a close up to a wide shot you would see frame loss uh, right in that in that transition and that that has to do with um, you know, oftentimes the B frames and P frames within, you know, between it. So there's no, there's no other keyframe that's there. It switches over, um, and it and it's, it's it it makes it a smaller file to not do that, to not like keyframes every single time the scene changes. But sometimes it, you pay the price and frame rate. So I I think that it it could be something that the encoder is doing because YouTube won't do that on its own. Uh, it would have to be the encoder sending that information to YouTube that way. Um, but I, I think it's unlikely that it's the Sony camera. Uh, next question.
1: Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. Is this new? YouTube's creators channel yesterday talked about the new ability to live stream 5.1 surround sound audio on YouTube, and he's got a link there.
5: Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, so I'll find out obviously very quickly if this is new or not. We, we've obviously had the ability to upload video content with 5.1 if this is new or i guess even if it's not I, i'm also curious about if there's been any more work on the back end in terms of how will we eventually deal with that you know the super source making sure people's uh, picture in super source would align with their spatial positioning and the audio and some of the fun things we can do there yeah go ahead, jeffrey
4: they made it a point to say that you can only watch it on tvs not on uh uh Mobile devices. So, and I know, of course, we've, uh, we've done a 5.1 test uh, live stream. And, uh, and from listening from there from a phone, I, I, was, I was able to hear what was going on. So I'm not exactly sure how they're rolling that out, but it's available to anybody that does have 5.1 uh, and a microphone, an ambisonic microphone. So uh, you can give it a try. But also keep in mind that, that it's also going to take some resource uh, if you do any type of live streaming. Yeah, they they do
5: it? have, if I, if, if I could just add in the video, and I can post a link to chat if, if folks are curious, they link to a channel, I assume it's there, it's a YouTube channel that is 24-7 live streaming, uh, just random different 5.1, and so I noticed that of course too that they said TVs, but even listening to that channel <laughs> on my phone, I mean you definitely get yeah. that spatial audio
0: yeah so um I believe that if you watch it on your phone, you're getting binaural, so they're folding down the five dot one to binaural um as as it is so I think that that's a that's a pretty good thing we've been working uh with YouTube on this for a couple months <laughs> so so it's uh so we've been our channel this is now rolling out to a wider audience, but our channel's had this for a while um and we saw us use it in uh, at n a b um And what we did at NAB, which I think was, and we're going to do again um, on Friday. Well, you'll see us do a test on Friday and a test on Saturday. We haven't started rolling it out to the public yet, but we have been doing tests. And so what we're using, uh, what we'll be using on Friday as a test, and and, and, and the, again, these will be unlisted tests. You want to watch Discord. Um, I'm not going to post them publicly. We're still figuring some a couple things out. And we're doing two things. We're doing HDR10. So we're using a PQ curve and an HDR10, as well as... um. Uh, we may experiment with a higher frame rate. This will we'll be at 4K 30, not 60, because we're missing one component uh, in that puzzle. Um, but we hope to have, uh, be doing 4K 60 at a soccer game uh, in a couple weeks uh, as another test. Um, and, and, and so it'll be 4K 60 HDR with 5.1 to YouTube. And um, so we're kind of pushing that that envelope right now. The 5.1, what I thought was really interesting about it, and I think some people here watched it a little bit, it is only over, over OT. it's only, 5.1 truly is only over OTT, but binaural to other things. We used an ambisonic mic, we're using a Sennheiser Ambio. Um, that is then going into a sound devices, and I, I showed it, I think, yesterday. We had to make some new cables, because we had getting the, you have to do AES out of the of the Scorpio, to get that into the into what, so we, we have a pretty complex system at the moment to do that, but it's an ambio mic. Those four channels plus two mic channels uh, go in, they're embedded into the SDI into a live view. That's then passed back out to, to us. Um, and then the interesting thing there is that then that comes back as, so you've got four ambisonic inputs as well as the two mics. The two mics get put in the center channel, And the ambisonic is then uh, re, and we, I think uh, Mickey talked about, or Mickey showed some of these things, uh, maybe, I think it was last week, last week or the week before, but the ambisonic mic is reformed back into the 5.1. It's re, and it's, and then basically what's cool about that is that we have the environment. So we have you feeling like you're at the space, in the space, but the mics are coming down the center channel and they are they have separate control over them. So we can decide how much ambient you get. So they're using SM58s with electrodes on them, you know, they're they're right down the center. There's not a, you know, we can control that. And so that the you get the airy feeling. And I've never, I, you know, I went back and I looked at it. I don't think I've ever seen coverage that felt that way because you normally what happens is you're getting, you're trying to get all the environment or you're trying to get rid of all the environment. Here, we're having the environment there and able to kind of uh, attenuate it as needed. And so, um, so we'll be doing more of that on Friday and and again on Saturday. Um, so, you, so watch Discord. Uh, you'll see some of the unlisted uh, unlisted streams that, that, but they'll be posted in Discord so that you can watch them. If you've got an, uh, a a, tell, a box that, or if you if you've got a home system that can do five one, or even if headsets, just let us know how it sounds and looks. Um, but you should sh- you should see it at. We believe it'll be successful at four K. Uh, 30 frames a second HDR 5.1. So we're we're slowly moving that down the path. Um, I expect to by the fall we expect to do it in a more public way. So so we're just slowly moving that forward um, as we as we get closer to that. Next question.
1: Next one comes from Douglas Carmichael and Douglas says I read that AM radio stations are typically processed more aggressively than FM and that adds quote urgency to the audio and energy to the experience? What specific processing creates that sound and or field? Go ahead, Marnie.
6: Well, the need for processing differently in AM and FM is really due to how the um, audio is modulated onto the carrier wave. And so FM uh, modulates the actual frequency of the carrier wave, and AM modulates the amplitude or the volume uh, level of the frequency and uh, AM radio is just inherently more noisy because of that, and they process that audio to maximize the signal level over the noise of the radio spectrum. Um, and any audio in radio is is designed to to maximize the energy to add that urgency to it. But because FM is so much quieter, there's more dynamic range, and there's also a wider audio frequency band, right? You can get deeper lows and higher highs. They're cleaner, they're crisper. Um, That's why AM radio has fallen sort of out of fashion. More people are listening to FM than AM. Uh, Because of its noise and and limited frequency range and and reading recently that several automotive manufacturers are discontinuing AM radios in their cars these days, which is giving AM radio, uh, making them worried.
0: Go Bill.
1: Yeah, I started out in radio, and, and back there I worked on an FM station, but the biggest difference for me, and I think what paused part of this, AM looked for reach. They wanted to get their signal as far as possible, and one of the characteristics of AM radio, it is less line of sight. It hugs the curvature of the earth, it actually bounces off the ionosphere depending on transmitter uh, geometry and stuff like that, where the transmitter is located. But you, we would often get people who are hearing the AM side of the AM-FM combo that I worked at from Bolivia. And and uh, Czechoslovakia and things like that, because it was bouncing around everywhere. A lot of power went out. And in fact, you had clear channel stations that were licensed to have much more power than your standard local radio stations. And so they had to protect them from interfering with other things, and that's why they were called clear channel stations. I think all of that led engineers to say our goal is to reach as far as possible. So there was often substantial compression, literally brick wall limiting, and the maximization of power to get that sound to reach as far as it could on broadcast. FM didn't concern itself with that stuff. It wanted to be better quality localized. So you are hearing a difference. Good, Courtney.
3: Yeah, the FM compressors have to prevent a Prevent you from going into neighboring guard bands, into the guard bands, or into other people's frequencies, since you're the more modulation, the more deviation of the frequency. So you have to, according to the FCC, stay, of course, on your assigned frequency and not deviate. AM, uh, you try and prevent splatter. You're not going to change frequency, you'll be on that frequency. And also, AM, with its narrower bandwidth, tends to be uh, clearer for voice because it's got more energy in the f- 200 to 4,000 cycle range which is you know where the human voice lands so um i think you'll find a little more punch and that's why probably today there's a lot less music channels on am radio and am is turned mostly at least in the united states to talk radio news radio uh that kind of, of programming which is all voice located in the compressors uh there are a variety of different compressors chandler and um Uh, Neve makes some uh, that are tube-based that give you that nice warmth and that easy compression when it reaches that peak uh, without it uh, clipping or going into distortion. Yeah. yeah, And
0: one of the things that I, I think is going to be interesting is to see how, how the AM radio stations work, because licensing is really important. And having that radio license, regardless of how many people are listening on AM, uh, can be very powerful if you're streaming. Uh, a lot of the rules around streaming are sometimes more restrictive, but also some of the licensing for music and other things is less restrictive and less expensive. So um, so it's, it's going to be interesting to see how people use that, um, the, those AM stations when they start to worry less about who's listening on the frequencies and more, more about what's actually streaming. Quick reminder that you can ask questions anytime during the hour. Um, so go ahead and at, throw those questions in. If you've got general questions, throw, throw them into the first hour, a general discussion, uh, you can tag those. Uh, second hour is um, uh, you know, about basics, audio basics. So if you've got questions about that, go ahead and throw those in right now. And make sure to, um, to vote to vote on those questions. I get up every morning and the first thing I do like not maybe not the first thing I do, but almost the first thing I do while I'm, while I'm making coffee and doing other things is I go through and I vote on all of these. So I know which ones I've already seen as they go through it. Um, it's really good to vote on the, on the, on the questions um, because it really gives us a sense of what you think is important as producers and listeners. So, um, so go ahead and throw that and make sure to vote on the questions that you have in front of you. Let's go to the next question, Bill.
1: Gus Libby in Satellite Beach, Florida. Any plan to review Audio Hijack's new machine learning filters with an eye towards reducing the hardware needed for a minimum sound studio?
0: Yeah, I'm really interested in the denoise specifically. Um, So Audio Hijack has a 4.2, I think is the new update. We talked about it a little bit on MacBreak yesterday, and it is—it uh, looks really good. Um, the the big thing is always, I think that Audio Hijack is going to be able to start to take advantage of the of the M series chips. I think it already has, but I think it's going to be able to continue to expand those, and so I think we're going to see more and more there. What I want to do is do a head to head with um, Audio Hijack, and I won't be able to do it this week, but probably next week, uh, and the Noise Assist from from Sound Devices, and see like what is the. What are we seeing that is better or worse um, in in audio hijack? Uh, giving them both the same signal and then and then doing that. So that's probably the head to head that I'm most interested in. And if it if it works, oh, that's really cool <laughs> to be able to have something you know on the Mac uh, that can do that. Of course, um, there are Crisper is isn't is available I think on the Mac and the PC. Um, and there's some other PC solutions as well that already do this, um, especially if they're using RTX boards. Um, there are some Nvidia-based uh, uh, noise reduction. I haven't, I haven't found that the RTX-based ones. I believe I don't believe they're as good as the sound devices from what I've heard. Uh, but, uh, but, but we'll hopefully we can. We're going to see this expand. I think that noise reduction will be something that we think we'd kind of take for granted five years from now. But we're still, it's still a tricky business. Uh, go ahead, Jeff.
3: Well,
5: and this is the kind of thing uh, when we did the brainstorming on audio topics, I suggested something like this would be fun and cool if we did a bracket style elimination rounds of comparing uh, a few of the options. And this is something because there are so many options I think uh, would be fun and informative to do.
0: The hard part is doing it over Zoom because, you know, it's not, it's, you know, it's not the same quality, you know, so it's hard to, it's hard to hear the, all those differences. It's better to put up a file that people can download and listen to it and then try to talk through it. Go ahead, Bill. Or
5: we, we
1: point, sorry, we point folks to the YouTube stream. Right, 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 right. Absolutely. Go ahead, Bill. I do think it's very much worth exploring. I've been shocked. I am using the voice booth so much less now since I implemented the Cedar system on the Universal Audio Apollo that I use. Uh, there's just no noise in here that it can't defeat and give me a clean signal. And it's been kind of freaky. It's been nice to be relieved from having to go into a little box to remove just regular ambient sound. And I think as this continues to flow out, it's going to make audio better for everyone real fast.
0: I really feel like if we do reviews, we have to add freaky to it. So it's like, it's like, it's good. It's good. It's great. It's freaky. Yeah. (laughs) Next next question.
1: Next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. Douglas says, for someone who owns iStat menus, would iStatistica Pro give any advantages for system monitoring on Mac OS?
0: I have to admit that if I, if I, I already have iStat menu, I have, I use it, I put it on almost every computer I have. Uh, I, I don't, I think I would have a hard time. Um, I think the only thing that iStatistica Pro may give you as an advantage is I think that because it's on the app store, it'll probably copy, you know, for free to multiple Macs. Um, you know, and so, uh, iStat, you're kind of buying it, at least I'm buying it for every computer. And so, um, and I don't think I get it from the, uh, yeah, Mac store. I've been buying it directly from them. So, uh, it's not, neither of them are very expensive. And so, I'm, but I don't, I, I really like the way I have iStat menus working. Um, they work, you know, and if you already had iStat menu, I don't think I'd probably buy iStatistica, IST, uh, but if you didn't, you might want to look at both of them and see if, if one is better than the other. Uh, next question.
1: Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach up next. Are there any newer, smarter AI based audio D reverb plugins anyone has tested out or on the horizon? No, go ahead, Jeff.
2: Haven't tested it. Uh, I've used Isotope a lot and they have a, an assistant, but it's not really an AI. I know Waves has got uh, one that claims to be an AI D reverb I think one of the big problems that's going to go into AI development here, if you think about you're doing D reverb on dialogue on a film shoot, um, what you really need to get a great AI is to have a large model. And so all of those individual pieces that people are working on need to go into a large model that can analyze and get used to help the AI learn and use, uh, do better noise reduction, reverb reduction for everything else. However, the intellectual property of that dialogue is going to be the problem. No one's going to want to allow their isotope or whatever plug-in to upload their dialogue to a cloud for analysis and use that analysis globally. I think that's part of what uh, is going to hold this back is IP. Right, go ahead, Jeff.
5: That's certainly the case uh, when the setting is constantly changing but there's also plenty of people um and really piggybacks on on bill's point so now we can take the noise out of the room and now folks don't have to use necessarily a specialized room so they go into bigger rooms and and unlike bill most people uh, don't have any treatment whatsoever so it's quiet but you know sounds like you're in a um uh you know a a church or a bank or something that uh, with all the echo and and selfishly not only for myself but so that so many of the folks we've talked about that come in on zoom webinars and conferences and and everything else and and likewise seemingly don't even hear how much echo they have in their own audio i would love to be able for them to be there or someone to process
1: their audio likewise Bill yeah I just forgot what I was going to say i had an, an, a fascinating point and it <laughs> escaped me so i apologize
0: yeah the uh uh in my experience the best one uh which is it's a little expensive because it's it's a one trick pony and it costs a lot of money is Zynaptic. Uh, so when I really needed to fix something with a lot of reverb, uh, I use Zynaptic for that um it's a it's a quirky quirky plug it's expensive and it's a single mission uh plug but it does an incredible job at removing uh i've done some we had a, we had a very uh, reflective room with, and we pulled the, the audio from the mic across from the person and then removed all the reverb from it. And it, it worked really well, you know, and so, but, it, but I finally felt it. I did all the RX stuff and then moved to Zenaptic and paid for it because I needed to get the best thing out. Works really well. Next question.
1: Next question comes to us from Jack Ruppel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Timecode question. Cameras that have no external mic connection but have stereo audio recording, could you inject time code in one channel and jam sync from there? Earbud encased in foam or fitted into the mic hole? 3D printed,
3: perhaps? I go ahead, Courtney. Uh, sounds strange. Uh, if you're going to jam sync, that would probably mean that the camera has an internal time code generator. Uh, and you can feed timecode into it, and usually ones that have an internal timecode generator have a timecode in jack on them somewhere. Usually it's a BNC connector. Uh, so look for that. Uh, you could, when you inject timecode into an audio channel, it's kind of a stopgap measure. You Your uh, timecode generator... Uh, is external, like the Tentacle or one of the other small timecode generators that output to use with DSLRs. Uh, those just record on the audio track, and in post-production, then they're decoded. So the timecode generator isn't jam-synced to anything. Uh, that The little outside generator is jam-synced, but internally in the camera, um, that is just recorded as an audio feed. So you could feed it in. If you have some way of feeding it in at an audio level, it's not going to clip uh, feed it into one channel and audio into the other channel. But remember, inside those cameras, there's a lot of crosstalk, and timecode is a very nasty signal that tends to uh, bleed into everything else. So you may not be able to get it out of your audio channel if you're using one side of a stereo input to record timecode uh, on your medium.
2: Go ahead, Jeff. So would it work? Uh, yeah, I guess so, because timecode was developed uh, in the LTC version, the, the longitudinal or linear timecode, to be an audio signal. So it's it's a digital code that gets represented as an audio signal and it can travel down normal uh, mic lines, uh, line level, and it can also be, get recorded on audio tracks. So you could put it into an earbud and stick it on there and the microphone would pick it up. There'd be a lot of... A distortion and possible bleed out into the world um, much better to use a clap slate and get a uh, if you can get a digital clap slate where you have the code reading on there and then at least you have the proper time code at the start then you're just relying on the frame rate of the camera to stay in sync um, which that's not going to be any different whether you actually put code onto the audio channel or not
0: yeah and and Back when we didn't have, we used a lot of cameras that didn't have that. Um, We definitely, you know, used, I mean, I I have to admit that when we don't have time code, uh, I have found trying to insert time code in an odd way is a little bit fiddly. um, And we just sync it with the audio. (laughs) Like we just use the audio track, that's um, there to to resync it, uh, and we find that to be almost as fast as doing it uh, again a, a slate works well um, if you can show that all the cameras the same slate you don't even need to jam sync anything. you can just move the slate around and show all the cameras that because you can go to that frame, whatever frame it is doesn't have to be all at the same time um and it's, you show that frame and you and you can type in the time code later um in in your editor and then all the time code will be resunk to you know to that. Um, So, so we've used that and we've used as simple as there's a um, time slate, I can't remember what it's called smart slate or time slate um, on a, on an iPhone. You just kind of show all of the cameras that, and you get that time code back in. Um, Of course you can use things like tentacle and just have it be in there and just put the time code in. If you're, um, you know, having the audio there, I don't worry about bleed too much. If I'm only doing it in one channel, only because as soon as I decide I'm going to put time code in, I've already decided I'm not going to use the audio on the camera. <laughs> like like, like I'm, I'm now, that's the, the, anything that's there is reference. I'm not going to, you know, if you're going to put time code into your camera, you're making a decision that you're going to record the audio somewhere else, um, in my opinion. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to go down that path. Uh, go ahead, Courtney.
3: And a reminder, if, if the camera does have a timecode input on it, in other words, it has its own internal timecode clock generator, um, it will not uh, take up any of the audio tracks. It will be, putting that timecode into the metadata for each file uh, as a number at the header. And so uh, it won't be taking up uh, any of your audio tracks if it has its own internal timecode generator. Next question.
1: Next one comes to us from Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington. Need an app and or program recommendation to retrieve deleted messages or deleted images, excuse me, from an SD card. The coworker thought he transferred all the images, so he deleted them from the SD, the little SD card, by dragging to the Apple trash can. Finding not all the pics were saved went to the trash to retrieve. They were not there. Go ahead, Marty.
6: So I did a search and I found that um, LifeWire, L-I-F-E-Wire.com has a, a review of the 21 best free data recovery software tools of 2023 and they list a couple such as uh, recuva which i've used before fairly successfully and a few others Um, i would just add one caution to make sure you do a virus check on these before you actually do the installation uh, because i have uh, my uh, uh, virus checker has has flagged a couple of these there's another one that i found uh, that you can download from the windows uh, Microsoft store uh, called uh, uh, Windows File Recovery. Uh, and that will also do SSDs as well as spinning drives and uh, and removable drives.
1: Good, Bill. I'm going to caution you the same way that Marty did, but even a little bit farther. this is an area where software developers and not the best software developers really understand that you're in a you're in a pickle. You've got, important files that are lost and some of the programs that advertise uh... heavily to recover will put you through a circumstance where you pull it down you install it it finds hundreds of files, and you go, Oh gosh, everything's recoverable. And then the bad news comes. If you want to actually recover them, it requires a credit card and some ongoing subscription like building that's hard to get out of. I do think, you know, there are good programs out there, and I am thankful I haven't needed to really go looking for them in the last five or six years, but be careful. Be careful. Get good things and something from Microsoft. I would trust far more than I would uh, trust a commercial product sold to recover your files. Go, Jeffrey.
4: Disk Drill. Disk Drill is made specifically for SD cards. They got more tools. It's it's a it's a basically a suite uh, for recovery and for cataloging. Uh, so this doesn't happen again. So and of course it works on the Mac and the window and Windows. It's one of the top rated. Uh, uh, data recovery uh pieces of software and like i said it works specifically with sd cards
0: yeah and uh i i've also used distril successfully as well as wondershare those are the two that i've that i've used um and they both have worked really well distril is the one i've used the most recently uh, when i accidentally deleted a file while i was transferring them uh, or deleted a bunch of files um, while i was transferring the, the main thing is once you start writing over it again once you if you do anything as soon as you know that you've done something to an sd pull it out and let it sit until you're gonna put the app in because as it, well, all it's done is flag them as gone right now. So it's all still there, but as you start to write, it's gonna start writing bits in, into the middle of those files and make them invalid. So you wanna be very careful of that. You should never, ever use a free disk um, uh, recovery just never use it you're going to pay real money for this. You made a mistake. seventy bucks, eighty bucks, ninety bucks, hundred bucks somewhere in that range is what you should be paying for these. Uh, if you're paying less than that you you may be you may be the product <laughs> you know so 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 I would highly recommend against any free any any free disk recovery what are they getting out of this and uh, um, and I made the mistake years ago, maybe a decade ago, of downloading something for free, and I ended up with Adware that I couldn't get off my computer like it was like bonded to the computer so um, you would definitely don't want to do that uh, go ahead Jeff
5: and just to piggyback on that uh, you and bill are being nice assuming that all they're going to do is charge you or maybe put a little friendly adware in there but Bill's a hundred percent right they're they're counting on the fact that you're in panic mode you're maybe not thinking as critically uh, y- you will also potentially find that your whole computer is just encrypted and locked and well
0: unlocked. and the thing that you should you shouldn't worry about locking your computer as much as you should worry about key loggers. The most dangerous thing that you can end up with on your computer is a key logger because it, you know that it because what they can do is let it sit there for years without doing anything with it, and what they're hoovering up is all of your passwords and all of your you know like your processes and all the websites and everything else. And so, uh, it's it's really really um, important to be very careful about what you give, especially on a Mac. Uh, I think PC is a little harder to protect, but on a Mac, is if you don't give it, you, you won't have the access to do that unless you unless you type in your password. <laughs> so if, if something asks you to type in your password, you should you always should think hard uh, about it. Next question,
1: Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. I'm trying to measure, model, and interpret acoustic emissions prior to deadly avalanches. They travel in diffuse slab waveguides, indicating slab collapse collapse prior to shear. Help. Go, ahead, Jeff.
2: So well, I'm out of my element here, but I'm fascinated by the question. Um, so if you're going to capture uh, acoustic emissions, you need obviously a microphone. I would think you need a microphone that does extended frequency response because you may have things that are infrasonic below our uh, 20 hertz lowest frequency we can hear. So you're going to look at an, at an omnidirectional measurement mic. I would probably go with something that does a high sample rate and a, and a 32-bit recorder. So if you can do 96K 32-bit floating point to allow you to have a wide uh, bandwidth so you can actually get ultrasonic frequencies as well, and then put that into some kind of analysis program, a uh, smart Or or if you're just going to record it afterwards, you could look at that in something like isotope, where you can see frequencies beyond what you can hear. I'm not sure exactly what a diffuse slab waveguide, is that something that is occurring naturally in the rock before the avalanche? Is there a waveguide where the sound is coming through? Or is that something that's used to measurement? I don't know. Maybe Jack can come on and give us more information about this, because this sounds fascinating.
0: Good, Courtney.
3: Yeah, you know, everything Jeff said, uh, I'm not an expert either, but if you're looking for a mic, I'd say start with something like an Earthworks M50. It goes down to three hertz or five hertz, I think is the bottom end on it. Uh, it's omnidirectional. It's designed to sound measurement microphone. Uh, that might get you started. The problem is, I think if you're going to be taking these readings outdoors, since you're looking for avalanches, uh, protecting it from wind, if you're using a microphone, is going to be quite problematic so you're going to have to somehow limit low frequency sounds I mean uh, wind noise from affecting the capsule without attenuating the low frequency so that might be a little tricky uh, other than that uh, maybe build it in a protected enclosure and you could probably still hear those low frequency sounds they'd be tra- transmitted to the enclosure bury it in the ground maybe and put that 32-bit float recorder in there with it then analyze the waveforms later good morning
6: So in measuring, depending on whether you have the ability to make contact with a rock, you might be looking for a measurement microphone with an extended low end. You might be looking for an accelerometer or a pressure sensing device and you can find a couple of manufacturers are Graz acoustics G R A S. Um, and they have a variety of different types of sensors and microphones uh, another one is uh, pcb electron uh, piezo electronics uh, pcb.com uh, and you can find a variety of different sensors there and then uh, uh, you would want to have some sort of an interface to connect those sensors to your computer or uh, maybe a a wireless transmitter of some sort uh, or a data logger uh, that's located close to the sensor so that you can collect that data over time.
1: Next question. Next one comes to us from Dan Huber in Erie, Pennsylvania. What iOS app do people use to measure a room's decibel level? Go ahead, Jeff.
2: So I assume they're asking about uh, dB SPL sound pressure level. So what I use is tools by uh, Studio Six Digital. Um, Mickey just put in the chat that the uh, there's a free app uh, by NIOSH, um, which is uh, National Institute of Occupational. Oh, I can't remember what the acronym is, but you can look for that. Um, and if you have an Apple Watch, there is actually a measurement on there. Uh, the The inexpensive one from Studio 6 Digital is SPL meter, and it looks like the old Radio Shack SPL meter. And I've put it next to that with uh, the stock mic in your iPhone, and it works just fine within a decibel of of that reading. So it's pretty dang good. They do make, uh, some companies make microphones that will plug in. They're calibrated, but generally the, the default mic that's in your iPhone works very well with the app. I'll throw up a link for that in the chat. Go ahead, Jeffrey.
4: Yeah, I've had this on my uh, phone since my iPhone 3S. This is just basically R- RTA. And uh, I normally like to use it only if I just need to get a basic readout and, and then I'll just grab an RTA, uh, uh, Tester, if I need a more uh, accurate thing, but as Jeff said, it does work really well. Just remember that if you put a, have a case on your iPhone, uh, that that can actually affect the sound a little bit. So you might want to take the case off of it. Yeah, go ahead, Marty.
6: Yeah, the most important thing about measuring audio uh, is the calibration. So. Um, Uh, every portable device if you're relying on the microphone in your phone everyone has a a different sensitivity the electronics the preamp in the phone is different and so you need to um, uh, be able to have a a known volume level that you can then calibrate your device. And some of these apps will, will have already done some tests and may have profiles for different phones. Uh, but if you're really looking for accuracy, you'll need an, an external microphone that you can. There are some USB microphones that you can plug in directly into your phone that have a calibration curve that come with it it'll be printed out as a curve and you can enter that into your software uh, mike w is a popular one uh, they have a variety of microphones there try that
0: and i will say that i've used decibel x um, next to a calibrated meter that is highly calibrated and it was plus or minus 2 db like it was like you know, and, and uh, I was kind of amazed, um, you know, to it, uh, you know, it. it uh, yeah. And that, that might not be enough accuracy, but but it gives you a general sense of what you're what you're doing. Uh, next question.
1: Next one comes to us from Douglas Campbell. Would there be a Thunderbolt four dock with dual Ethernet ports? Many audio over Ethernet technologies require a dedicated network connection of their own.
5: Uh, go ahead, Jeff. Presumably, you know, of course, that you can plug in. Uh, A- Apple sells their own uh, gigabit uh, to USB-C Thunderbolt uh, adapters. Uh, but, you know, I did want to mention, it- it's an interesting trend, at least, that I'm seeing with docks in general, as-, as some of this gets more consumer-focused and focusing on the market of more people working from home. Uh, if you look at Logitech has uh, the LogiDock, you um, You know, it's not a, for techies, it's not a great direction because it has zero Ethernet ports. They focused on it looking pretty with their Alcantara fabric or whatever they're calling it. And they focused on having a big speaker and microphones. In other words, encouraging more of the don't wear headphones, just sit in front of your dock and 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 talk and hope that the software can figure it out so you know I think big picture but OWC of course is a company to keep an eye on for the the holdouts with the good quality in ports if they ever do that go jeffrey
4: so there is uh, i have not yet to find a dock that has dual ethernet in there but what you can do is you can plug in the uh, thunderbolt 4 dock Into that has a single Ethernet, and then actually plug in a secondary Ethernet into the USB uh, or USB-C plugs from there. Keep in mind, you're probably only gigabit speeds at at best from there. Uh, And if you start to travel outside of the uh, standard stuff, like the pluggable, the OWC, and things like that, some off-brand names, just see what type of chipsets that they're using in there to make sure that everything's on the up and up and they're not trying to... Uh, go after your data.
1: Next question. Next one comes from David Brady in New York City. And what are the pros and or cons of using Zoom's built-in software encoder versus standalone hardware encoders?
0: I think the pro is that, uh, of course, it's a lot more convenient. (laughs) It's built into the system and you can turn it on and point it at it. Um, I think that the con is that you don't have, number one is I think that Zoom ISO produces a better quality image. So if you're taking it out, if you're pulling Zoom ISO out, And then um, building your show, you can obviously add more graphics, add other bits and pieces, do a lot of those other things. And so uh, you're gonna get a higher quality. I think it's gonna look nicer. You're also gonna have more control over the encode quality. Um, And so you can do do a lot of extra things. Additionally, you're gonna see us kind of push forward on this, what we're doing here, is that if I'm streaming, I could theoretically have the Zoom participants, and we've already done this before, where we stream and we have the Zoom participants coming in with Zoom ISO, um, but then our graphics are, um, you know, so the, the graphics that we use, uh, the music that we use, uh, the transitions that we use are all done in, the, in our video production pipeline. And what the advantage of that is that when you stream to, let's say YouTube, you have a buffer and you have, uh, encode, you know, you're able to encode over time. You're not trying to do it in real time. If you push all those graphics and everything else into a WebRTC solution like Zoom, you're going to end up with frame loss, macro blocking, all kinds of other stuff. So if you're trying to push all that in there and make it look really nice, it's very hard to do that. Um, whereas if you just use Zoom to, to pull out your participants and then you do all the other stuff um, downstream from that, you're going to end up with a much higher quality uh, in, um, event. Go ahead, Chris.
7: Well, also, I think that uh, if you're trying to get images into Zoom, can you do it in, in a way other than than using their encoder. You know, I was having this conversation with Jonas the other day, and he was saying that um, Zoom uses a proprietary codec for its own you know, internal uh, encoding that doesn't exhibit the kind of typical macro blocking that we're used to because it it has a... He described it as almost like a swirl pattern that it mm-hmm. encodes that is optimized for faces. So. Uh, we spend a lot of time on Zoom just during the day. Like I'll have Zoom on in my truck half the time when I'm when I'm driving, and uh, I'll be you know chatting with friends and stuff. I don't recommend this at home. Uh, uh, I'm a trained professional. Uh, it, it works much better on a face. Um, if you s- turn the camera around and you see you know the the, the scenery or the mm-hmm. driving, obviously every frame is every pixel is changing, but it really breaks up a lot that yeah. way. But uh, he said it was a proprietary codec that only Zoom uses, and it uses some swirly technology.
0: Yeah, and and I think that, but again, I think you're going to get a much higher quality thing. But again, it's more convenient for folks who don't have the encoders, don't have the hardware, don't have those other things. It's great to have an encoding option that's inside of Zoom if you want to send it out. uh, But you're definitely going to be able to um, step up the quality, I would say, pretty dramatically if you're doing it um, post and just using Zoom to supply the people. Uh, next question,
1: Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington, got a new Shure MV7 USB microphone in the office. Do you test new consumer level mics to see if they work okay? And if yes, then how?
0: Uh, go ahead, Jeffrey.
4: Uh, I test. I, well, I test more on the consumer side of things. So, getting in deep with uh, with. Uh, uh, hardware is is not how I normally test it. You also have to test uh, I also have to test w- w- the USB side if it's a, the the hybrid version of the MV7 the uh, XLR side as well so I do have some hardware that I can uh, that I can pl- plug it into to get some readings on all uh, on frequencies that are being used and, and things like that uh, but for the most part what I'll do is I will record something and I'll just listen to it on a whole bunch of different devices to see how it sounds. And, uh, and I do have uh, some software, uh, some of the WAVE software, that will help me understand how this is being sculpted when, it, uh, when it's coming out to you guys. One more thing to think about, and that is, if you're using the headphones on the MV7, to also test it with headphones in, with sound coming in, sound coming out, because that can change the difference as well.
1: Good, Bill. With major manufacturers like Shure, I tend not to because I just expect their quality control is going to be good enough. If the electromechanical part, the diaphragm and the, the field that it's in or the magnets that it's in, if they've tested it at the factory to work, it's probably going to work. Then I just get to know the mic and see how I need to use it.
0: Yeah, I I I, I do it very scientifically. I, um, I plug uh, two mics, usually the mic that I'm using right now, uh, as well as another mic into two inputs of the same mixer, and I listen to it. I switch back and forth i turn one up turn one down um and i talk into it and talk into them and i listen to them and i decide this one sounds better or worse than the one that i'm using um it's very very scientific uh but I, i i find that i've tried to measure them and i've done a lot of things and i can do that and sometimes you know you can do things like noise floors and you can do other things like that but what i'm mostly interested in over time i found that i'm mostly interested in um, just how it sounds uh, with with something that I already have reference to because I'm here six hours a day, <laughs> in the, in the, you know, like talking through this mic. So it's a known reference point for me about what it what it could sound like. Um, and so, I mics are all plus or minus whatever I'm using whatever what I guess we would call my daily driver is um, is is related to that process.
2: Um, yeah, go ahead, uh, Jeff. I'll add one scientific thing to your very scientific test, which is <laughs> as you're doing those, those A-B testing, be very careful to match the level of the new mic to your current mic yeah. because we as human beings, psychoacoustically, we prefer things that are louder. So if it's louder, we'll often prefer it. So always match level as best you can
0: yeah no i absolutely do that and i and i also say the same thing when you, many people have heard me say it there's 20 seconds of i mean, i can do it for longer than this but there's the first 20 seconds of we are glad the Dauphin is so pleasant with us his president pains we thank you for when we have matched our rackets to these balls we will in france by god's grace play a set shall strike his father's crown into the hazard the reason that i use that is that it fits when i say it at regular speed. It fits to it fit perfectly into the Skype testing call. Hello, this is the Skype testing call service. You know, and and, it, and if I just said that one piece, I could hear it. It would it would play it back, and uh, and so when I test mics, I still use that same thing, I, I because I can say it like a tape deck. It's going to be the same every single time that I that I put it out, and that gives me a, a point of reference. I gotta go ahead, Chris.
7: So, Alex, you're saying when you're testing your microphones, you're using your ear chromator is that correct? My ear chromator yes. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very technical uh, ear Yeah, 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 exactly.
0: And you know, the the hard part is, is that, you know, you have to make a decision about, I'm making decisions about what my might, what what I sound good on. Uh, one of the problems that we have is that we have to make a decision about what, uh, what makes sense you know, for everyone um, now. So far, we've decided that the MV7 makes sense. It's it's a it's a it's a series of compromises um, that are related to the fact that it is it's got a headphone jack. Has to have a headphone jack if it's going to be USB. <laughs> like there's some that just got released that didn't have a US. They have a USB but no headphone jack, and I'm like, okay, well, how that's how is that going to work? Um, and so you have to have a headphone jack with zero latency. You have to have USB if we're going to send it to a consumer. It also has to have XLR because I want to know that I can expand it and use it for other things. Um and then uh, and then typically you know after that we're looking for build quality and and um, you know general audio sound but those are the things that 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 we do when we think about the generalized solution and so far we haven't found anything that we like better than an MV7 connected to cost as well uh, go ahead Marty.
6: Yeah, so there are a lot of variables that we're trying to overlook um, for the benefit of simplicity, like, you know, the headphones that you're using, what do they sound like, and how do they um, modify the sound of the microphone? Uh, And if you're you're trying to eliminate as many variables as possible, and you, like uh, Alex was saying, you have a microphone that is sort of your baseline. If you go back to last Wednesday's show and you look at what Michael Curtis was showing, us on for using an uh, audio analysis software like open sound meter which is free software you can actually uh, do talk into both microphones and once and look and see what the differences are in comparing the two on on a graphical interface so you can see what distortions are different what frequency responses are different the noise floors Um, you can look at a lot of so if you're looking for to get really technical about it that's one way you can do it
0: yeah and, and one note to, to marty's thing, marty's uh, comment there which is great is that i don't use the headphones that i use for the show um when i do that so i actually sw- I, I do listen to them to, just to see what they sound like here but i use i have some audio technica 50x's that i use for when i'm actually listening to things that i have to pay attention
5: to go ahead jeff and just devil's advocate about the headphone jack that you mentioned, Alex, and, and the low latency. You know, for someone that is going to do this a lot and is used to hearing their own voice and knows what to do about it, yes, that's what they want and need. But quite frankly, the average person um, not only won't do that, but but arguably maybe shouldn't because, again, uh, for the first time, it can be very off-putting to hear yourself and then you get focused on what you hear like sound like and not the other folks so for them plugging their headphones into their computer and hearing the other side of the call and never knowing what they sound like is good for for that group of people
0: yeah no i agree i, I just don't want to commit to that you know so sometimes we have people do that and sometimes we, we do that i just don't want to commit to that's the only way they can hear them so that, that we can't do that because the real problem we have with Folks with the microphones, and they put dub earmuffs on both ears or put something into both ears, they talk really loudly because they can't hear themselves, you know. And so, and then it, it sounds uh, like they're yelling, you know, or speaking up rather than just having a, a, a conversation. So that's why we try to give them back, to, even if it takes it. And usually when I'm sending mics out, I'm sending them to people who actually get interviewed all the time. They're used to hearing themselves. They're just used to having really bad audio. You know, like they, you know, the, the broadcasters haven't told them how bad they sound when they're on air you know and so we're fixing something that is is just amazing that we're even having to send them a mic they they get interviewed all the time they're super tight this is for the for michael krasny show and and they and they're very high profile and just no one told them that they were that they uh, didn't sound good Alright, we're now switching subjects. I'm going to hand this off to Jeff to, to do the introduction here, but we're going to talk about uh, digital audio basics um, and all the things that you may need to know if you've got questions as Jeff starts to go through this and as the panel starts to, to discuss this, uh, make sure to throw those questions into Makana and we'll, uh, I think we're going to have a good, good uh, second hour. Go ahead, Jeff, take it away.
2: Yeah, so let's talk digital audio. Uh, Put your questions in, uh, anything that you may wonder about. Um, But let's start right back at the very basics with uh, getting waveform to go from analog to digital. So we're talking about audio, and audio is a pressure wave changing versus time. We put it into microphones, it turns into electricity changing versus time. So if we think about analog, analog is something that is continuous both continuous amplitude, a whole range of amplitudes, and continuous time. And if we think about digital, that is discrete, that we've divided up uh, amplitude into individual slices and we divided up time into individual time. So what is it? the process of making uh, individual discrete time? That is the thing that we call sampling. Um, So sampling is basically periodically grabbing the amplitude of the waveform and how fast do we do that well we do that at what is called the sampling rate um, and what are some of our common sampling rates we'll talk about the high uh, high frequency ones in a little bit um, but the basic ones we have 441 and 48 as our basic sampling rates so we should be pretty used to those why those numbers why do we need um, those numbers, how fast do we, do, this is all done periodically, so those are evenly spaced, um, and basically it all comes down to what's called the Nyquist frequency, and that's exactly half that sample rate. So Nyquist was one of the guys that thought all this stuff up, and uh, Nyquist and Shannon talked about uh, sampling, and the interesting thing is, is that sampling is perfect. This is absolutely uh, came through as a theorem. Sorry, wrong button there. Um, Sampling itself, converting from continuous time to discrete time is perfect as long as we take the limitation that we've restricted our bandwidth. So I'm gonna use 48K, 48 kilohertz sampling, that gives us 24 kilohertz as the Nyquist frequency. That means from zero hertz to 24 kilohertz our sampling process is perfect. We can grab the audio and we can sample it and turn it back into regular audio perfectly. So here's just some generic waveform I drew, and you can see there's a lot of like tiny little squiggles in there. That's the ultrasonic stuff, that's higher than 24 kilohertz. The very first thing we have to do before we convert it to digital and sample it is we have to filter that we have to remove all those ultrasonic frequencies, everything above 24 kilohertz. Once that happens, then we can periodically come along and grab the amplitude, evenly spaced samples. And the actual digital signal, there is no time in between those samples. That time does not exist. Sample zero exists, sample one exists, sample two exists. There's no time in between those. So we get a series of, and I'm leaving out the quantization side of things, which we'll get to in a second. We have amplitudes at time. And so we get a series of dots. When we come back to analog, realize no human being has ever actually heard digital audio. Everything digital gets turned back into analog before you hear it, because your ears are analog. We got to connect those dots. Well, we've all done connect the dots, and it's really easy to do, but How many different ways can you connect the dots? Well, an infinite number of ways. But with digital audio, there is only one right answer, and that goes through all the dots, and it's the line that goes through the dots and does not contain frequencies above Nyquist, above that half the sample rate. So as long as we go with the limitation of, we're gonna accept that all we need is frequencies from zero to 24 kilohertz, and that is assuming that we as human beings do not hear anything up there, then sampling itself is perfect. Um, All right, so some people go with high sampling rates, 96 kilohertz, 192, there's 384, all these crazy high sampling rates. Um, That does not do 20 to 20 kilohertz or zero to 24 kilohertz any better than 48 kilohertz does. Having more dots, having more samples in between doesn't give you any better resolution down at 1K and 100 Hertz and 5K and 10K. It simply gives you more bandwidth. It gives you higher frequencies. So if you're just going to do normal audio from 20 to 20 kilohertz, 48 kilohertz is just fine. Um, some of the reasons you might do higher frequencies are if you want to do sound effects and you want to slow that audio down. So if you record something at 192, you could slow it down four times, two octaves in reduction in pitch, and now you would hear frequencies you've never heard before because something that was, a, you know, 40 kilohertz is now playing at 10 kHz. Um, processing, so dynamics processing and Distortion processing um, will create harmonics that are beyond 20 kilohertz. Even though we can't hear them, we need to take care of them. So I'm going to talk about aliasing here in a second, which is what happens if we don't take care of those uh, sampling problems. So that's a time where we might need um, higher sampling rates. So what is... Sorry, I keep hitting the wrong button there. What is... uh, aliasing so aliasing is what happens if a high frequency gets in beyond the nyquist rate beyond half the sampling rate so at 48k if say 30 kilohertz came in well we've defined the audio there is no frequency above 24 kilohertz so what does the sampler do with 30 kilohertz if it didn't get filtered out now most of the time we never hear this because it does get filtered out so if I show you that same kind of waveform here, this is a really high frequency coming in. And if I sample that with the same spacing, you see that the samples are too far apart. There's not at least, we need a minimum of two samples per wave. And so when that gets reconstructed, when the dots get connected back together, and we convert back to analog, then we get this thing that is a low frequency that is audible, but was not is not what came in. And this happens all the time. We've seen it in visual media. We get it called the, the wagon wheel effect. And uh, let's see if this plays here. So believe it or not, that helicopter is not levitating, it just so happens that the frame rate of the picture and the frame rate of the rotors are synchronized, so that the rotors are going too fast, and every time they spin around, they're in the same position every time we take an image. And it looks like that helicopter is levitating. Well, we get the same exact thing if we get high frequencies in digital audio, and we don't take care of this by preventing this thing called aliasing. That was aliasing in visual. It happens in audio as well. So that's probably a good spot to like take a break and get comments and see what questions and all those sorts of things. Yeah, we've got some questions stacking up. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Okay, the first one, TJ Asher in Minneapolis,
1: Minnesota, says: Why the difference between the audio sampling rate of 40, forty-eight kilohertz used for video or film and the sampling rates of forty-four point one kilohertz, ninety-six kilohertz, and so forth, which are used for just audio? The sampling rates are orders of magnitude larger than film or video frame rates, anyway. Uh, go ahead, Marty.
6: Well, some of the differences are the uh, related to the content that's being recorded Uh, when you have uh, primarily dialogue speech uh, you don't need as much of the high frequency reproduction as accurately as you do when you're uh, recording and reproducing music um, with high frequency content such as symbols and such and uh, there are other differences the economies of uh, file size with smaller sampling rates and bit depths uh, allows you to um, To conserve drive space, Um, and it's interesting that uh, just recently, uh, Pro Tools Expert, uh, popular website, um, just released the the results of a study they did or a survey they did about sampling rates, uh, in uh, that people use um, either in professionally or or in their uh, non-professional capacities, and um, you know they they let's see if I can show this here. Uh, So they they broke the market up into three different types of work. uh, Music, both music and post and just post and which sampling rates were most popular. Uh, they combined 441 and 48 into one category uh, because they were interested in the differences between uh, low sampling rates and the very high sampling rates of 96, 88, 192 and 176. So uh, 44 one and 48 were uh, by far the <clears throat> uh, even though it's music, by far the most popular rates being used uh, for music and in post was even more popular. And uh, for those people who are doing both post and music, um, you know, the distribution of popular sampling rates was a little bit different. And they had one category that was for rates that they didn't account for here. Uh, So There are a number of reasons why they use different sampling rates, um, mostly mostly related to the content and file sizes. Good, Bill. Yeah, the
1: other thing that you have to think, there's a cadence involved in video and or uh, film, and there's a cadence involved in audio, and they are wildly different cadences. In film or video, you're typically at 24 frames per second or 30 frames per second. In audio, you're at sample rates of 48,000 or 44.1 thousand samples per second. So you've got this thing going along when you're editing video or any kind of film that says You are only allowed to cut, make edits or mess with things on frame boundaries or the whole system falls apart. So it's locked. You're locked at 24 frames or you're locked at 30 frames. Now you bring in an audio system on top of that where you can literally get down to the sample rate and remove content or something like that. But that throws the cadences off entirely unless there's a lot of math behind the scenes keeping things in order. So typically we focus on the video when you're working in video, you get that all right, and the audio has to has to be conformed to make sure that it has consistency and output against the video.
2: Go, Jeff. So film and video frame rates, 24, 25, 29.97, those kind of things are based on being fast enough to make individual still pictures look like moving pictures. That's movies, and what the audio equivalent of that is kind of our lowest audible frequency. That's twenty hertz. If you if you repeat sort of a, a a roll on a snare drum slower than that, you can hear individual notes. But if you begin to go very fast and you go more than twenty times a second, it's going to begin to take on a pitch, because human perception. If things are slower, spaced apart, we see them or hear them as individual events, and if they come fast, we begin to put them together as a continuous motion. So the frame rate of video is down kind of with like the, the fundamental, the lowest frequency of human hearing, sort of around 20 hertz. You see that they're both sort of 20 times a second number. If we get film going 24 frames per second, we get audio going 20 times a second, we see continuous or we hear continuous Uh, events. The sampling rate of audio is about the highest frequency that the system can store. And it's really simple math. Take the sample rate, divide it in half. That's the highest frequency that that system can store, process anything. The other frequencies cannot be there. So the question becomes, is 44.1 enough? Is 48 kilohertz enough? Well, it's certainly enough if you consider that human hearing goes up to 20 kilohertz. And I don't know if you've listened to t- test tones anytime, but 20 kilohertz is really high and a lot of people can't hear that and they're fabulous audio producers, music producers, musicians, video producers. Having 20 kilohertz doesn't really matter. So 441 is enough. Um, why do people use 96? Sometimes in processing, a lot of times we do, uh, we add distortion. Or we do multi, uh, we do mix bus processing and dynamics. Dynamics will create harmonics that are beyond that twenty-four kilohertz limit of forty-eight k. So when we do that processing, it's great to do that processing at a higher, faster rate. You can either work on your entire project at ninety-six kilohertz, and then it will handle those harmonics, or you can use an up-sampling plugin that takes 48K audio, upsamples it to 96 kilohertz or even higher, does the dynamics processing, removes the harmonics that human beings can't hear anyways, and then reduces it back to 48 kilohertz. We don't need to hear those harmonics. We just need to make sure they don't show up in the audible range. Go ahead, Courtney.
3: And one of the reasons that you know digital audio came about before digital video did And so, when they came up with the sample rate for audio, they came up with 44.1, which is the sample rate they settled on. The industry settled on because of the Nyquist uh, uh, feature uh, rule. And um, when they came up with Sony came up with the first digital video recorders, they decided to sample audio at 48 kilohertz. And then they determined when they were going to try and do 24-frame video for to give it that look of film, 24 frames per second. They tried to make it compatible with the television standard, NTSC television standard, which was 2997, which is a non-ediger rate. So they ended up at uh, 23.98 frames per second in digital video uh, for high def. And uh, that... But they stayed at 48 kilohertz for the sample rate for audio, and that created a lot of problems for synchronization since uh, they had to pull down audio from uh, 24 frames per second shot on the set to 23.976, which is used for digital encoding. So uh, there's been this problem between the two. They stayed at 48, even though there's a discrepancy between the two. Uh, there were schools of thought at Sony to you know, mandate that everyone record at forty-seven point nine five six, which eventually we threw out the window because all the tape machines recorded at an even forty-eight kilohertz. Didn't have anything re- necessarily to do with the audio quality at all of the sample rate. It was just for numerical, um, you know, ease of calculation to use integer numbers versus non-integer numbers. Go, Jeff
2: so somewhere in the system and sometimes more than once we need to take out everything above that half the sample rate that nyquist frequency all that ultrasonic stuff so if you start with 48 kilohertz audio and you're going to work completely in 48 kilohertz you need a low pass filter to remove things from 24 kilohertz on up to infinity um this has been a difficult problem, and this is what why early digital audio sounded bad, because that was really that's a really hard filter to make in the analog domain. So the way this has been solved, and everything we do now is done with oversampling. So your converter actually converts at something like typically eleven megahertz, and so when you convert at eleven megahertz, you can make a very simple analog low pass filter that needs to reduce things above five megahertz. And then once we've done that, now we're in the digital domain, and we need to do some very fancy math to do a very accurate brick wall low-pass filter. Now, can you get a perfect brick wall f- low-pass filter? Yes, you can. It just takes infinitely long to do it. So there's a trade-off, how long do you want to take to do your analog-to-digital conversion using oversampling? The longer you take, the more accurate it is. And that's why we have a little bit of a guard band between 20 kilohertz, the general accepted limit of human hearing, and 24 kilohertz, where 48 kilohertz digital audio cuts off. We have a little bit of room there to do this not quite perfect uh, brick wall filter. Yeah, and and one of the
0: things that, that um, you know I I often record when it matters, <laughs> like when it, when I'm really doing something for an event, I usually record it at 96 or 192. And the reason is is because I, you know, I want to make sure that I have all that headroom. In the same way that I may be delivering a photo, we may decide that I want an 8 by 10 photo, but I'm still going to shoot with all the resolution I can possibly shoot with uh, when I build that source photo so that I have exactly what Jeff's talking about, which is oversampling. So I have a lot of extra bits there that when I deliver it, it's still going to be 48 or 44.1 or whatever. So as a delivery format, that sample rate is, is going to be fine to, to put that out. But a lot of times we don't want to capture at the delivery format, you know, even if I'm doing, you know, a, a 1080, like oftentimes I do shows at 1080p, but I the entire source is running at 4k or sometimes even 8k, um, and that's all being and that it, it, there's a lot of benefit to scaling down, you know, from that from that area. So and it has saved me a couple times, <laughs> you know, in that area. Uh, I am told by some folks that that were kind of so 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 to speak in the room that a lot of the reason 48 exists in is because of 24 frames a second and because avid decided that's what they wanted (laughs) so it was they had they had access to both the editing package and the and the audio package and uh they they kind of um uh you know fuse those together because it was mathematically easier and exactly what courtney said the the drama of the 47 and the 48 uh there's it still happens we still see sampling issues depending on especially when we get it's funny uh, we have some issues with some European manufacturers that are just—they need it to be correct, and it's not, you know—and and we're like it can't be correct because because it's wrong. It was wrong when it came out of the gate, and it, it bothers their sensibilities. Um, yeah, go ahead, Jeff.
2: So before we move on to that was a good segue to move on into quantization. But speaking about sampling rates, uh, I've often thought that we should just give up on everything and we should settle on twenty-five frame film, twenty-five frame video. And fifty kilohertz sampling, and of course, then we can go to fifty <laughs> See, frame video as well, you know. And so everything I, I would just be, be one hundred twenty really nice.
0: frame per second, on one ninety two. Like I think that's that's what that's the recording.
2: <laughs> no, no, we need nice integers. So a hundred frames yeah. per second that oh, yeah, would make Zoom you know. happy because they run at twenty five, right? Yeah, so yeah. the other half of this, we've talked all about time. We need to talk about amplitude as well, and amplitude. Um, Turning continuous amplitude, an entire range of amplitudes, into discrete amplitude is something that's called quantization. Um, Be careful because the same quantization word gets used in MIDI music production where we quantize something to the nearest quarter note. It's a similar idea, but it's not the same thing. It's not about time. It is about amplitude. So it is putting something to... It's basically if you take the word quantity out of that, it, it's giving a number to an amplitude. In analog, we can have an incredible range of amplitudes, and there's an infinite range between the largest positive and the ne- largest negative. And so what we're going to do, again, I'll show these little simple pictures here. Here's our sampled audio wave, and what we're going to do is we're going to take the positive to zero to negative amplitude range, and we're going to break it up into quantization levels. Um, And you can immediately begin to think, oh, the more levels, the better. Um, So this is a place where digital audio is not perfect. We are essentially rounding. We all did rounding in third grade. You know, you take, there's some, uh, somebody here probably remembers the little uh, mnemonic device to remember it, but if it's You know, 0.5 and we round up, and if it's 0.4 and less, we round down. So we're doing the same thing here. And you can see that some of these don't land exactly on the lines, and so we've moved to the nearest quantity. So quantization itself is not perfect. How do we get it to be more perfect? Well, we um, use more levels. We use more levels, we get smaller levels. How do we get more levels? Well, the levels is based on the bit depth. How many bits do you have per sample? Um, And so it's binary. Every time you add a bit, you double the levels. Um, Here's a really easy piece of math for you. If you double the levels, it's essentially six dB of dynamic range per bit. Every time you add an additional bit, you go from 16 to 17 bits per sample you've reduced the error by 6 dB. So 16-bit is something like 96 dB of dynamic range, which is absolutely fine for consumer delivery. 24-bits is great for production. That's 144 dB of dynamic range. That is beyond the theoretical limit of the thermal noise in the input of your analog mic preamp, all right? So that's greater than we need. Um, 32-bit floating point is a different situation, and we can talk about that a little bit, but I want to make sure we we get this idea of uh, bit depth. So we talk about 48 kilohertz, 24 bit. 24 bit gives us plenty of dynamic range. The general dynamic range of your ear from the quietest thing you can perceive to the loudest thing where you actually start to feel pain is somewhere in the neighborhood of 120 decibels. So we're looking at 144 dB of dynamic range in a digital audio system.
0: Well and, and I guess the question for you there is is then then when are you gonna talk about thirty two when we talk about thirty two bit float, we start dramatically changing that dynamic range, right?
2: Of what's being right. Captured. So this is fixed point, which is kind of the similar thing as um, normal numeric notation. Mm-hmm. And then we move into a floating point, which is kind of like scientific notation. So um, scientific notation is used when we have really big or really small numbers. So uh, I always remember Avogadro's number, 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd. It's the number of uh, atoms in a mole, right? Or moles, yeah, atoms in a mole. So that's that's a big number, 10 to the 23rd. I can't wrap my brain around that. But it's an easy way to express it where we have a number, 6.002, And then we have an exponent, times 10 to the 23rd. Well, floating point does the same kind of thing. Um, 32-bit floating point gives you a 24-bit number and an 8-bit exponent. And that 8-bit exponent shifts the dynamic range of this 144 dB really, really loud or really, really soft. You never get better quality than 24-bit but you can shift it over a huge 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 range. So if stuff gets loud, it can go up, if stuff gets quiet, it can go down. So the actual storage is only 24 bit, but it's just enabled very easy to shift that over a range range, a big range of amplitudes and it's over 1500 dB the range of amplitudes that's allowed at, at any one point, given time.
0: At that point you're like dealing with the, the the mechanical dynamic range of the mic, you know, not not really the recording Right.
2: Yeah, this is well beyond the mechanical range of any microphone right. or human hearing or anything like that. It's a, it's, a, it's a safety issue. Now, remember, even if you record 24-bit, all of the processing happens at at least 32-bit floating point and maybe 64-bit floating point, where you now have a 48-bit number and a 16-bit exponent. So the processing within your digital system is way better. Mm-hmm. Why? Because as you do math, which is all that digital signal processing is, you create, you know, if I ask you to divide one divided by three, you're going to say 0.333 repeating. Well, now you have an infinite number of of, of decimal points that you may need to store. So as you do math on a 24-bit number, If you make a gain change, that is a multiplication, now you need to store bigger and bigger and bigger numbers. So all of those get stored in 32-bit floating point, and then the final mix bus is usually a 64-bit floating point processor. The storage of 32-bit is not as important. It may be important when you can't control the dynamic range or you're not sure and you wanna make sure that you captured something. So these recorders, sound devices, some of the new zooms that record 32-bit, that's a great safety for people who are in a situation where they're not sure what the dynamic range is gonna be, and they're worried about potentially the, the actor that they put the mic on it clipping, and that way you won't. But once you get into processing, everything is 32-bit, floating point. Ne- next question.
1: Next question comes to us from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. What are some of the best practices when using Dante? Thanks.
0: I think that, you know, for me, the best practices are mostly um, to not, um, not, I don't, I try to not have Dante live on the same network. (laughs) So at least a different VLAN. And oftentimes if we're building something, we're going to put it on its own copper. Um, so that they're all it's all its own little world um, but a vlan is secondary you can run it with it with everything else um, i don't find it to be a great uh, solution um, the netgear uh, 4250s are great if you're going to start mixing and matching those things and then you got to have a piece of hardware that does dante you can't just use software dante it needs the chip to, to you know for otherwise you're going to end up with clocking issues and the number one thing you're going to end up with in dante is the clocking <laughs> clocking issues is is the number one thing that we see and what the, the the result will be that you'll lose audio for a couple seconds um you know in the middle of what you're doing go ahead, jeff
2: i would say that um and andy actually put in uh, or mickey re- recommended uh do all the dante certification courses because there's a lot of great information there uh level one level two level three on the audinate site um if you really want to get crazy, they've started these four-day in-person small group. I think it's 10 students at a time uh, where they encourage you to break and fix Dante systems. But best practices, uh, you you nailed the first one, which is segregated networking. If it's a small Dante network, I would let everything uh, manage itself. Plug the devices in, let them all on, be on DHCP. There doesn't need to be a DHCP server. Let every device default back to link local, 169.254. They will talk to each other, um, and that will happen just fine. Um, If you're using Dante Virtual Soundcard, oftentimes it's a great idea to let that be dedicated to that machine and get that machine off of other uh, network devices, other NICs, and turn off Wi-Fi on that machine. Next question.
1: Next one comes to us from Cindy Drozden, Erie, Colorado, using Windows and a Rode wireless Go 2 mic, is there a hardware or software device that can adjust the level of background sound, similar to DaVinci Resolve's voice isolator, not eliminate, but reduce machine noise? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, if it depends on whether you're doing it live, Cindy, or whether you're recording and want to play back. It's easier if you're recording because there's all she's, sorts she's of limitations. I mean, Cindy but if you're live. doing live, there are only a couple of systems that allow you to do that in real time that I'm aware of. Uh, we've talked about uh, noise assist in a mix pre. You could run it through there and kill the noise there. Or uh, what I'm using here, which is the Universal Auto Apollo Solo that has uh, the Cedar system built in for real-time live noise reduction. There are some things that do it.
3: Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and if you have a um, uh, NVIDIA video card in your Windows machine, uh, RTX Voice, which is an uh, uh, application available from NVIDIA for doing real-time noise reduction, and I think they have plugins or, or works that work with OBS and uh, a variety of different um, works with Discord, OBS, Streamlabs, a variety, Twitch, Zoom, Slack, a lot of things like that. So you could look at that. Uh, it's just an app you can download. It's in beta, but it's free uh, as opposed to noise assist, which of course will work for you. But you have to have the you know, sound devices. Right. Won't it. work with a Go. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Jeff.
5: I'll just give another nod to uh, Reaper, the DAW that I use. And and one of the things you can do in that live situation is set it up to just simply process plugins live. And, and it's got, you don't have to use it, but it has the ability to do very sophisticated routings. In other words, for that session, you can just run Reaper, use whatever noise uh, reduction plugin you want, and just let it route through uh, Reaper. Of
1: course, you can, while you're at it, throw some other handy plugins at it too.
0: Next
5: question.
1: Next question comes to us from Josh. It looks like Gledhill in Birmingham, UK. Can you explain the importance of dithering and how that affects the audio product it's almost forgotten
2: about? Go ahead, Jeff. So as we deal with quantization intervals, so if we have 16-bit audio, we've got you know 65,000 of these levels. They they seem pretty small. We go to 24-bit. There's more than 16 million of these levels. They get really small. But eventually, when our audio gets down low enough, we are now passing through very few of those. So uh, in the top here, you see. Um, there is the audio is the blue line and the red is the quantized. And at the bottom, you see the difference between the two. So we've had actually an error and digital audio doesn't describe it as noise. They describe it as error because it's a mistake from what it was supposed to be quantized as. And if audio gets uh, really small in relation to those, you can see that the error here has its own frequency to it it's related to the signal itself. When the audio is really loud, the error is random, and so we hear it as noise, but when the audio gets quiet, the error becomes something that becomes related to the signal, anything that's related to the signal we think of as distortion. So this is a distortion when audio gets really quiet, and dither is the thing that comes to the rescue here. So dither is just a very, very low-level noise that randomizes the quantizer. So the quantizer is looking to round to the nearest level, and so we're gonna basically add a little random element to the rounding. So normally when we round, if it's five or up, we round up, and if it's four or below, we round down. And what we're gonna do is basically, we're gonna throw a die, and we're gonna add that to our thing. So sometimes we round five down, and sometimes we round four up. We add some randomness to our rounding, And so that dither adds a slight increase in noise, but allows us to perceive things well below the noise floor. Um, If digital audio gets really quiet, and this happens usually in the fade-outs of long reverb tails, then you begin to hear this distortion, and the audio will actually come and go, because it is seeking um, movement between levels. And if it exists too long in one level, it writes the same number down over and over and over again, which is a, an audio frequency of zero that we can't hear. So the audio comes and goes. So when do we need dither? Dither is time we go from a high number of bits to a lower number of bits. And if you think about analog as having an infinite number of bits, going from analog to digital the first time we need quantization if you produce a 24-bit master, you need dithering to go to a 16-bit master. Um, so anytime we do math within the system, that 32-bit floating point, as it goes written out back to 24-bit storage, or that gets dithered. Dithered a tiny bit of random generation put on there. It's,
0: and I don't know if this is a direct relation. I haven't thought about it this way before, is it kind of like, so when we have a, a very like a, a, gray, that a gray gradient that's going, that's, that's very low and you see the stair stepping that's there. And a lot of times the way we get rid of the stair stepping is to add noise. <laughs> we just add a little bit of noise to it and it breaks that up. Is it
2: similar to that? Would you, Jeff, do you think? Yes. That, yeah. Very similar to that. Yeah. Uh, and so oh, dither, yeah, um, basically on the analog side, we don't have to do dither. Because the analog noise that is inherent in the input stage of our analog systems is enough noise to properly dither. It's, it's louder than the dither we would add. Because molecules bounce around in resistors and moving electrons, you know, electrons bounce around. Moving electrons is electricity, that's noise, that's Gaussian noise, that happens there. Um, the big place that users deal with dither is going to create a final... Usually, it used to be for a CD, we would create a 16-bit master. And so we would try to get the best of all of our 24-bit goodness into 16-bits as possible. And so we had to re-dither at the new 16-bit level. And people tried all different kinds of things to uh, shape the dither. So dither could be just white noise, or we can actually place dither noise where we don't hear it as well. So if you look at this, this is uh, frequency on the bottom and level on the top, and it starts at like one K and goes to 20 K. And you see that these different types of dither have shoved a lot of the noise power up in the very high frequencies so that you don't hear the dither as well. Next question. Before we leave oh, this question. Sorry. Yep. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Hope we lost you. You're, you're muted. Jack. Sorry, I lost you. Um, I muted myself. Uh, going back to that Dante question about uh, best practices, we forgot the most important thing do not use energy efficient Ethernet switches. <laughs> turn yeah. well, you, off you can,
0: EEE. You can use them. You just, just got to go into the, you got to get in there and turn turn all the eco switches. Yeah. You know,
2: So So the, the, the key thing is beware of unmanaged switches because it's very, very difficult. There are some, but it's very hard to find an unmanaged switch that does not have EEE enabled Mm -hmm. um, or a partially managed switch that allows you to turn it off. And it's also very hard to find that information on the manufacturer's site. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. Scott
1: Mueller, Germantown, New York. When using Dante virtual sound card, is it good practice to only use as many channels as you need? Go ahead, Jeff.
2: Uh, I think that is good practice. I do that. If I only need, you know, six channels, I will set it up to be an 8 by 8 uh, Dante. Um, I will not have, um, on my system, I will not have subscriptions. So Dante the communication between a transmitter, and audio output, and a receiver. Um, The audio input is called a subscription. Um, Don't leave subscriptions that you don't need. So if you have a 64-channel stage box and a 64-channel console, and you're using two mics, you're burning all that bandwidth in your Ethernet system. Most of the time, you'll be just fine. But for Dante virtual sound card, since it is a virtual sound card and it's burning computer resources, I will very commonly set that to what I need. I will not set it to 64 by 64 if I only need six channels.
0: And by the way, um, there is a Dante training, I think it's one, two and three or three days in a row, um, August 1st, 2nd, 3rd, I think. Um, And I think a bunch of us are thinking about all joining at the same time. So uh, I think that it's a free webinar. um, And I think we're, we're thinking of, crowding that that one uh there so so take a look at that and see if that's something you want to sign up for i think a bunch of us are gonna i'm gonna try to take the time off to to go through those uh, with everybody else so stay tuned for that next question
1: tj Worrell in minneapolis if not covered in the overview what are the panel's recommendations for audio levels on web delivered content interviews with music beds typical corporate content i hear way too much that is delivered at close to digital zero good jeff
2: so we go for minus 24 LUFS as a part of this show. So LUFS is loudness units full scale. That is a, a meter that has been compensated for human hearing. So something in the 3K to 4K range will make that meter move more than something some audio that's in the 30 hertz range. So it, it reads more like we as humans hear things, as being loud or soft. Um, That's probably a a good range for spoken word, maybe up to minus 20. Um, For music, um, most of the streaming services have settled somewhere around minus 16 uh, uh, LUFS as their uh, target level for average. So thinking about like Apple Music, Spotify, Tidal, YouTube Music, Amazon, all of those things—they scan through the entire song and they come up with one Lufs number that is averaged over the entire song, and they will move the song to that level. So loud songs they will turn down so that as you go from song to song to song, the average level is the same. Um, most of them have uh, will do that. If you're in shuffle mode, they will do that by song, and then if you're in album mode, it will keep the entire album relative dynamics as the artist intended it will just shift them as an album to be the proper level good bill
1: I hear exactly the same numbers from my delivery specifications. I do a lot of broadcast work. I will either get uh, deliver at 24, negative 24 lefts, or at negative 16 lefts. So those are the standards. Anything going out to the web, I tend to do just two masters. I run one through an analysis program, do it at 16. I run the master of the program again through another analysis program, do it at 24. I post both of them up on my content distribution network and let the individual stations or the individual um, – websites pick and choose go jeff
5: and we're kind of hitting you with two different numbers and they're very different considerations there's the levels within the mix so you know for instance the raw feed you're getting or the raw audio you're getting from bill and then using that in your mix and then the final mix i could tell you through painstaking uh, research and comparison youtube specifically the sweet spot is negative 14. And they will uh, reduce audio that's too loud. They will not increase audio that's too quiet. And a cool thing, you can go actually on mobile also, but you can on desktop, easily right-click, look at the stats for nerds on a YouTube video. And it's confusing at first. You'll see a percentage and it's telling you what, if anything, they've had to lower it from what was delivered or uploaded to them so uh, i played around with all these and then so negative 14 is that sweet
1: spot for youtube at least next question next question comes to us from marty Adius in maryland are there microphones capable of capturing uh, there are microphones capable of capturing up to 100 kilohertz how important is it to capture overtones and harmonics or do we really not miss them i go jeff
2: Uh, For straight ahead music, uh, I would say there's a lot more that we need to get right on most music productions um, than frequencies above 20K, like, you know, songwriting and playing in tune and in time and all those kinds of things. Um, If you're doing sound effects, uh, capturing up to 100 kilohertz and using that 192 kilohertz sampling rate that gets you up to 96 kilohertz of storage is great because now you are free to pitch shift that down extremely. And now you can take those harmonics and bring them into the audible for everybody range.
0: Yeah. The, I, I, uh, I mostly have seen the the Sankin specifically being used, the 100K, um, the Sankin 100K, which I desperately want and I have no good reason for. So I just constantly try to figure out like, this it's the one thing that it's <laughs> like on my bucket of stone. I have no reason for it. It's like thousands of dollars, like $3,500 or something like that. And I so want it and I don't have any, I don't have an excuse yet to buy one. Um, but it is, um, it, I mostly I've seen it with effects. And so if you ever wanna think about how, uh, a dinosaur sound to take a chicken and take its record it with the Sankin and then slow it down and you and it just sounds exactly like a dinosaur <laughs> like it's it's a it's a funny you suddenly realize that chickens are just miniature dinosaurs mini, miniature t-rexes uh go ahead uh Courtney
3: yeah the other use for those high dynamic I mean high frequency range microphones are if you're doing scientific studies of echolocation and bats anything that uses uh uh, frequencies beyond a human hearing that you need to record and analyze. You know they're they're useful for scientific yeah. instrumentation. Good morning.
6: And the other application is is orchestral recording, especially when you have like bowed string instruments, violin and even double bass. Um, The vibrations of those strings can be very, very fast and can produce overtones that we might not be able to perceive uh, primarily as as audio, but it it enriches the tonal quality of the the sound that we do hear from that instrument. the the existence of overtones and recordings can give us a, a different sense of, of the recording. Some might say that uh, uh, recordings that don't include these might sound sterile, for instance, and, and others uh, that do include it might sound richer, uh, depending on the content. Uh, so, you know, overtones can be important. Anybody who is a, a musical conductor, uh, or orchestral or classical instrumentalist would say overtones are extremely important. But then there's the, the limitation of what we can hear and what we can perceive. And then there's the limitation of what we can actually reproduce with, um, with equipment such as amplifiers and loudspeakers.
1: Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. Merging Technologies offers two versions of the Anubis audio interface. One can handle up to 192 kilohertz and one can handle up to 384 kilohertz DXD-DSD. For someone working mostly in electronic music, would the 192
2: kilohertz process be sufficient? Good Jeff. I would say yes, the 192 would be sufficient. You can get up to 96 kilohertz, which I can't hear. Um, But you can certainly create, with electronic music, you can create overtones and frequencies up there and see if if you can hear them. Um, So what is this DXD, DSD thing? Well, we started out recording digital audio at 48 kilohertz, And we found, as I said before, that that anti-alias low-pass filter was really hard to make in the analog domain, so we began to move into oversampling. Um, So oversampling would take and now run our converter very, very, very fast. We'd run it 256 times. And then the very first thing we did after we did that is we converted back down to 48 kilohertz. So we recorded at 11... Megahertz. Now we couldn't do 24 bits at 11 megahertz. We couldn't do that that fast. We could do four bits, maybe even one bit. And we would trade that really fast time accuracy for amplitude accuracy by going back down to 48 kilohertz and doing a digital low pass filter and getting the resolution in amplitude instead of time because we didn't need the resolution in time. So, same amount of noise we just Got rid of the noise that was up at the high frequencies, the ultrasonic frequencies, from you know 20 kilohertz to 5 megahertz, and then that's how we did all our processing, our storage, our editing, our mixing was all at 48 kilohertz, 24-bit baseband, what we call it, and then the DDA converters also use oversampling because it was much easier to do DDA conversion if first we digitally went up, and this is still how your DDA converter works. We digitally upsample and then we go into a very simple DDA converter. Well, DSD, created by Sony, Direct Stream Digital, said, well, we're starting at really high sampling rates and we're ending at really high sampling rates with this oversampling. Why don't we get rid of the oversampling and the downsampling and the decimation in the middle and let's just store something that's at 11 megahertz. Well, that was too hard to do. So they went with 64 times and you can do whatever math that is. Uh, I think it was 2 megahertz, 2.8 megahertz, and that was DSD, um, which was interesting, but we had to throw out all of our production equipment and write new plugins and make new digital consoles and have new recorders. And now DXD uh, tries to overcome some of the limitations of DSD by using high bit depth, so multiple bit converters, because DSD was one bit one bit at 11 megahertz. So really crappy dynamic range, really noisy audio really fast that was traded for uh, good sounding audio. And so DXD tries to store multiple bits really fast. It does eat up a lot of data. Last question for the hour.
1: Last one comes to us from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. Bonus question. It's labeled that way. Is Alex testing his new green screen technique on us?
6: Alex? Am I?
0: Am I? <gasps> no, <laughs> I'm close. I'm close. I had to. I had to actually clear. There's a bunch of stuff that because I've been organizing for going down to uh, to leave leaving tomorrow for um, to to come down to L.A. and so I uh, um, I had to clear a bunch of stuff out. So now it's all cleared. So soon, very soon, I'll be testing it. So stay stay tuned for that. All right. Thanks so much. Great. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for the preparation and the diagrams and the process. And the. It, these are really important conversations to have. It's, you know, it's, you know, a lot of times we talk about, you know, I was just in a conversation in, in on Twitter with somebody about theoretical versus uh, operational. And we, you know, really understanding how to do things is important, but, every once in a while taking a breath and going back and talking about the theory when we've done enough operational stuff helps us deepen understand what we're actually doing. And so I just really appreciate the work that you put into making that happen. So thanks so much. And thanks to the incredible panel here um, that added to what Jeff was talking about and and filled out lots of both questions and and answers. That we really can't do this without you. And and Tuesday, I mean, not Tuesday, but Wednesday being audio day uh, is, you know, this is a great day for people to ask questions. And the reason it's a great day to ask questions about audios because of the great panel that comes here uh, on Wednesdays to have this discussion with us. So thank you so much for being here. Um, thanks to the uh, incredible team on the back end that pr- figures out what we're going to talk about, that figures out how we're going to talk about it, that actually makes sure that we can talk about it. Uh, it's is a small village that puts that together and we really appreciate all of your work. Um, and uh, now we're going to go ahead. Uh, just a quick re- reminder that there will be, um, I didn't get it out yesterday. No, that yesterday turned out to be a little hectic, but I'm going to put out a sign-up sheet if you want to. Uh, we're going to have a dinner tomorrow night uh, in um, near Paramount, uh, the Paramount Studios. I'll, I'll send you an email and tell you exactly where, but we're going to put that out, um, and we're going to have that. at. at it's going to be at 6 o'clock um, there, so we'll put out a sign-up. You'll see it in Discord, so stay tuned for that. Um, and we are just a reminder that after Hours is going to be packed with Cinegear on Friday, and then we'll do a live stream on Saturday. So uh, stay tuned for that. And, uh, and finally, Tony Mobley will have his show at five o'clock today. So stay tuned for that as well. Um, we traveled the Tlaloc Traversal, 42,000 miles, 68,000 kilometers, and that is 337 million bananas for
3: scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. us without telling us you're testing on us. Oh, I'm going to. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, there's no Tony tonight. I thought there was Tony tonight. See, I finally remember to tell everyone that Tony has a
4: show, and then he doesn't have a show. Oh. <laughs> like, like, like I was okay. so close. <laughs> I was so proud of myself, because the announcement didn't pop up in the little list. But I was like, oh, but I'm going to take care of Tony tonight. I'm going to have to do the thing. And then I. Bit by Murphy's Law. Oh. oh, my God. Nice. Deck coming. All
2: right, here we go. Surprise! We didn't get into alphabet soup with AES-EPU
6: and S, P, D, F, and T, D, F, and Maddie. You took me. A- you did a-